Section 13 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Strassenberg. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 13, Volume 1, Chapter 6, Depot Journeys, Part 1. There was now too little work for eight of us in bringing up stores from the Fram, and it became evident that some of us might be more usefully employed elsewhere. It was therefore decided that four men should bring ashore the little that remained, while the other four went southward to latitude eighty degrees south, partly to explore the immediate neighborhood and partly to begin the transport of provisions to the south. This arrangement gave us all enough to do. The four who were to continue the work at the station, Wisting, Hassel, Stubberud, and Bjaland, now had as much as their sledges could carry. The rest of us were busy getting ready. For that matter, everything was prepared in advance, but as yet we had had no experience of a long journey. That was what we were going to get now. Our departure was fixed for Friday, February 10th. On the 9th I went on board to say good-bye, as presumably the Fram would have sailed when we came back. I had so much to thank all these plucky fellows for. I know it was hard for them, almost without exception, to have to leave us now, at the most interesting time, and to go out to sea to battle for months with cold and darkness, ice and storms, and then have the same voyage over again the next year when they had to come and fetch us. It was certainly a hard task, but none of them complained. They had all promised to do their best to promote our common object, and therefore all went about their duty without grumbling. I left written orders with the commander of the Fram, Captain Nilsen. The substance of these orders may be given in a few words. Carry out our plan in the best way you may think. I knew the man I was giving orders to. A more capable and honorable second-in-command I could never have had. I knew the Fram was safe in his hands. Lieutenant Prestrud and I made a trip to the south to find a suitable place for ascending the barrier on the other side of the bay. The sea ice was fairly even for this distance, only a few cracks here and there. Farther up the bay there were, curiously enough, long rows of old hummocks. What could this mean? This part was really quite protected from the sea, so that these formations could not be attributed to its action. We hoped to have an opportunity of in investigating the conditions more closely later on, there was no time for it now. The shortest and most direct way to the south was the one we were on now. The bay was not wide here. The distance from the Framheim to this part of the barrier was about three miles. The ascent of the barrier was not difficult. With the exception of a few fissures, it was quite easy. It did not take long to get up, except perhaps in the steepest part. The height was sixty feet. It was quite exciting to go up. What should we see at the top? We had never yet had a real interrupted view over the barrier to the south. This was the first time. As it happened, we were not surprised at what we saw when we got up. An endless plain that was lost in the horizon on the extreme south. Our course, we could see, would take us just up along the side of the ridge before mentioned. A capital mark for later journeys. The going was excellent. A thin layer of conveniently loose snow was spread over a hard undersurface and it made it very suitable for skiing. The lie of the ground told us at once that we had the right pattern of ski, the kind for level ground, long and narrow. We had found what we wanted, an ascent for our southern journeys and an open road. This spot was afterwards marked with a flag, 
and went by the name of the starting place. On the way back, as on the way out, we passed large herds of seals lying asleep. They did not take the least notice of us. If we went up and woke them, they raised their heads a little, looked at us for a moment, and then rolled over on the other side and went to sleep again. It was very evident that these animals here on the ice have no enemies. They certainly would have set a watch, as their brothers in the north do, if they had anything to fear. On this day, we used skin clothing for the first time. Reindeer skin clothes of Eskimo cut, but they proved to be too warm. We had the same experience later. In low temperatures, these reindeer clothes are beyond comparison the best, but here in the south, we did not as a rule have low temperatures on our sledge journeys. On the few occasions when we experienced any cold worth talking about, we were always in skins. We returned in the evening after our reconnoitering. We had no need of a Turkish bath. On February 10th, at 9.30 a.m., the first expedition left for the south. We were four men, with three sledges and eighteen dogs, six for each sledge. The load amounted to about 550 pounds of provisions per sledge, besides the provisions and outfit for the journey. We could not tell, even approximately, how long the journey would take, as everything was unknown. The chief thing we took on our sledges was the dog's pemmican for the depot, 350 pounds per sledge. We also took a quantity of seal meat cut into steaks, blubber, dried fish, chocolate, margarine, and biscuits. We had ten long bamboo poles with black flags to mark the way. The rest of our outfit consisted of two three-man tents, four one-man sleeping bags, and the necessary cooking utensils. The dogs were very willing, and we left Framheim at full gallop. Along the barrier we went well. Going down to the sea ice we had to pass through a number of big hummocks, a fairly rough surface. Nor was this without consequences. First one sledge, then another, swung round, but no harm was done. We got our gear tested, and that is always an advantage. We also had to pass rather near several large groups of seals, and the temptation was too great. Away went the dogs to one side and full gallop towards the seals, but the load this time was heavy, and they were too soon tired of the extra work. In the bay we were in sight of the Fram. The ice had now given way entirely so that she lay close to the barrier herself. Our four comrades, who were to stay at home, accompanied us. In the first place they wanted to see us on our way, and in the second they would be able to lend us a hand in getting up the barrier for we were rather apprehensive that it would cost us a wet shirt. Finally, they were to hunt seals. There was plenty of opportunity here. Wherever one looked there were seals, fat, heavy beasts. I had put the home party under Wisting's command and given them enough work to do. They were to bring up the remainder of the stores from the ship and to build a large, roomy penthouse against the western wall of the hut so that we should not have to go directly on the ice from the kitchen. We also intended to use this as a carpenter's workshop, but they were not to forget the seal hunting, early and late. It was important to us to get the seals enough to enable us all, men and dogs, to live in plenty, and there were enough to be had. If we ran short of fresh meat in the course of winter, it would be entirely our own fault. It was a good thing we had help for the climb. Short as it was, it cost us a good deal of trouble, for we had dogs enough and by harnessing a sufficient number we got the sledges up. I should like to know what they thought on board. They could see we were already hard to put it to get up there.
what would it be like when we had to get on the plateau i did not know whether they thought of the old saying practice makes perfect we halted at the starting place where we were to separate from our comrades none of us was particularly sentimental an honest shake of the hand and so good-bye the order of our march was as follows prestrud on the first ski to show the direction and encourage the dogs we always went better with someone going in front next came helmer hansen he came we kept this place on all our journeys the leading sledge i knew him well from our previous work together and regarded him as the most efficient dog driver i had met he carried the standard compass on his sledge and checked prestrud's direction after him came johansen also with a compass lastly i came with a sledge meter and compass i preferred to take the last sledge because it enabled me to see what was happening however careful one may be it is impossible to avoid dropping things from sledges and making a journey if the last man keeps a lookout for such things great inconveniences may often be avoided i could mention many rather important things that were dropped in the course of our journeys and picked up again by the last man the hardest work of course falls on the first man he has to open up the road and drive his dogs forward while we others only have to follow all honor then to the man who performed this task from the first day to the last helmer hansen the position of forerunner is not a very enviable one either of course he escapes all bother with dogs but it is confoundedly tedious to walk there alone staring at nothing his only diversion is a shout from the leading sledge a little to the right a little to the left it is not so much the simple words that divert him as the tone in which they are called now and then the cry comes in a way that makes him feel he is acquitting himself well but sometimes it sends a cold shiver down his back the speaker might just as well have added the word duffer there is no mistaking his tone it is no easy matter to go straight on a surface without landmarks imagine an immense plain that you have to cross in thick fog it is dead calm and the snow lies evenly without drifts what would you do an eskimo can manage it but none of us we should turn to the right or to the left and give the leading dog driver with the standard compass endless trouble it is strange how this affects the mind although the man with the compass knows quite well that the man in front cannot do any better and although he knows that he could not do better himself he nevertheless gets irritated in time and works himself into the belief that the unsuspecting perfectly innocent leader only takes these turns to annoy him and so as i have said the words a little to the left imply the unspoken addition perfectly understood on both sides duffer i have personal experience on both duties with the dog driver time passes far more quickly he has his dogs to look after and he has to see that all are working and none shirking many other points about a team claim his attention and he must always keep an eye on the sledge itself if he does not do this some slight unevenness may throw the runners in the air before he knows where he is and to ride a capsized sledge weighing about eight hundredweight is no fun instead of running this risk he gives his whole attention to what is before him from the starting place the barrier rises very slightly until at a cross ridge it passes into the perfect level here on the ridge we halt once more our comrades have disappeared and gone to their work but in the distance the fram lies framed in shining blue-white ice we are but human uncertainly always limits our prospect 
Shall we meet again? And if so, under what conditions? Much lay between that moment and the next time we should see her. The mighty ocean on one side, and the unknown region of ice on the other. So many things might happen. Her flag floats out, waves us a last adieu, and disappears. We are on our way to the south. This first inland trip to the barrier was undeniably exciting. The ground was absolutely unknown, and our outfit untried. What kind of country should we have to deal with? Would it continue in this boundless plain without hindrance of any kind, or would nature present insurmountable difficulties? We were right into supposing that dogs were the best means of transport in these regions, or should we have done better to take reindeer, ponies, motor cars, aeroplanes, or anything else? We went forward at a rattling pace. The going was perfect. The dog's feet trod on the thin layer of loose snow, just enough to give them a secure hold. The weather conditions were not quite what we should have wished in an unknown country. It is true that it was calm and mild, and altogether pleasant for travelling, but the light was not good. A grey haze, the most unpleasant of kind after fog, lay upon the landscape, making the barrier and sky merge into one there was no horizon to be seen. This grey haze, presumably a younger sister of fog, is extremely disagreeable. One can never be certain of one's surroundings. There are no shadows, everything looks the same. In a light like this, it is a bad thing to be the forerunner. He does not see the inequalities of the ground until too late, until he is right on them. This often ends in a fall, or in desperate efforts to keep on his feet. It is better for the drivers. They can steady themselves with a hand on the sledge, but they also have to be on the lookout for inequalities and see that the sledges do not capsize. This light is also very trying to the eyes, and one often hears of snow blindness after such a day. The cause of this is not only that one strains one's eyes continually, it is also brought by carelessness. One is very apt to push one's snow goggles up onto one's head, especially if they are fitted with dark glasses. However, we always come through it very well. Only a few of us had a little touch of this unpleasant complaint. Curiously enough, snow blindness has something in common with seasickness. If you ask a man whether he is seasick, in nine cases out of ten he will answer, No, not at all, only a little queer in the stomach. It is the same, in a slightly different way, with snow blindness, if a man comes into the tent in the evening with an inflamed eye and you ask him whether he is snow-blind, you may be sure he is almost offended. Snow-blind? Is it likely? No, not at all. Only a little queer about the eye. We did seventeen miles that day without exertion. We had two tents and slept two in a tent. These tents were made for three men, but were too small for four. Cooking was only done in one, both for the sake of economy so that we might leave more at the depot, and because it was unnecessary, as the weather was still quite mild. On this first trip, as on all the depot journeys, our morning arrangements took far too long. We began to get ready at four, but were not on the road until nearly eight. I was always trying some means of remedying this, but without success. It will naturally be asked, what could be the cause of this? And I will answer candidly, it was dawdling and nothing else. On these depot journeys, it did not matter so much, but on the main journey we had to banish dawdling relentlessly. Next day we did the allotted seventeen miles in six hours, and pitched our camp early in the afternoon. The dogs were rather tired, as it had been uphill work all day. 
Today, from a distance of 28 miles, we could look down into the Bay of Wales. This shows that we had ascended considerably. We estimated our camp that evening to be 500 feet above the sea. We were astonished at this rise, but ought not to have been so really, since we had already estimated this ridge at 500 feet when we first saw it from the end of the bay. But however it may be, most of us have a strong propensity for setting up theories and inventing something new. What others have seen does not interest us, and on this occasion we took the opportunity, I say we, because I was one of them, of propounding a new theory, that of an evenly advancing ice slope from the Antarctic plateau, we saw ourselves in our mind's eye ascending gradually to the top, and thus avoiding a steep and laborious climb among the mountains. The day had been very warm, positive 12.2 degrees Fahrenheit, and I had been obliged to throw off everything except the most necessary underclothes. My costume may be guessed from the name I gave to the ascent, Singlet Hill. There was a thick fog when we turned out the next morning, exceedingly unpleasant. Here every inch was over virgin ground, and we had to do it blindly. That day we had a feeling of going downhill. At one o'clock, land was reported right ahead. From the gesticulations of those in front, I made out that it must be uncommonly big. I saw absolutely nothing, but that was not very surprising. My sight is not especially good, and the land did not exist. The fog lifted, and the surface looked a little broken. The imaginary land lasted till the next day, when we found out that it had only been a descending bank of fog. That day we put on the pace, and did twenty-five miles instead of our usual seventeen. We were very lightly clad. There could be no question of skins. They were laid aside at once. Very light wind clothing was all we wore over our underclothes. On this journey most of us slept bare-legged in the sleeping bags. Next day we were surprised by brilliantly clear weather and a dead calm. For the first time we had a good view. Towards the south the barrier seemed to continue, smooth and even, without ascending. Towards the east, on the other hand, there was a marked rise, presumably towards King Edward Seventh. Land, we thought then. In the course of the afternoon we passed the first fissure we had met with. It had apparently been filled up long ago. Our distance that day was twenty-three miles. On these depot journeys we were always very glad of our thermos flasks. In the middle of the day we made a halt and took a cup of scalding hot chocolate, and it was very pleasant to be able to get one without any trouble in the middle of the snow plateau. On the final southern journey we did not take thermos flasks. We had no lunch then. On February 14th, after a march of eleven and a half miles, we reached eighty degrees south. Unfortunately, we did not exceed in getting any astronomical observation on this trip, as the thedolite we had brought up with us went wrong, but later observations on several occasions gave 79 degrees. We had not so bad in fog. We marked out the route up to this point with bamboo poles and flags every 15 kilometers. Now as we had not fixed the position by any astronomical observation, we found that the flags would not be sufficient and we had to look for some other means of marking the spot. A few empty cases were broken up and gave certain number of masks, but not nearly enough. Then our eyes fell upon a bundle of dried fish lying on one edge of the sledges, and our marking pegs were found. I should like to know whether any road has been marked out with dried fish before. I doubt it. 
immediately on our first arrival in latitude eighty degrees at eleven in the morning we began to erect the depot it was made quite solid and was twelve feet high the going here in eighty degrees was quite different from what we had seen in all the rest of the way deep loose snow everywhere gave us the impression that it must have fallen in perfectly still weather generally when we passed by there but not always we found some loose snow when the depot was finished and had been photographed we threw ourselves on the sledges and began the homeward journey it was quite a treat to sit and be drawn along a thing that otherwise never happened prestrud sat with me hansen drove first but as he had now had the old track to follow he wanted no one in front on the last sledge we had the marking pegs prestrud kept an eye on the sledge meter and sang out at every half kilometer while at the same time i stuck a dried fish into the snow this method of marking the route proved a brilliant one not only did the dried fish show us the right way on several occasions but they also came in very useful on the next journey which when we returned was starving dogs that day we covered forty-three miles we did not get to bed till one o'clock at night but this did not prevent our being up again at four and off at half-past seven at half-past nine in the evening we drove into framheim after covering sixty-two miles that day our reason for driving that distance was not set up any record for the barrier but to get home if possible before the fram sailed and thus have an opportunity of once more shaking hands with our comrades and wishing them a good voyage but as we came over the edge of the barrier we saw that in spite of all our pains we had come too late the fram was not there it gave us a strange and melancholy feeling not easy to understand but the next moment common sense returned and our joy at her having got away from the barrier undamaged after the long stay was soon uppermost we heard that she had left the bay at noon the same day just as we were spurting our hardest to reach her this depot journey was quite sufficient to tell us what the future had in store after this we were justified in seeing in it a rosy light we now had experience of three important factors the lie of the ground the going and the means of traction and the result was that nothing could be better everything was in the most perfect order i had always had a high opinion of dog as a drought animal but after this last performance my admiration of these splendid animals rose to the pitch of enthusiasm let us look at what my dogs accomplished on this occasion on february fourteenth they went eleven miles southward with a load of seven hundred seventy pounds and on the same day thirty-two miles northward only four of them the three musketeers and lassison as fix and snepison refused to do any work the weight they started with being from eighty degrees south was that of the sledge one hundred sixty five pounds prestrud one hundred seventy six pounds and myself one hundred eighty two pounds add to this one hundred fifty four pounds for sleeping bags ski and dried fish and we have a total weight of six hundred seventy seven pounds or about one hundred seventy pounds per dog the last day they did sixty-two miles i think the dog showed on this occasion that they were well suited for sledging on the barrier in addition to this brilliant result we arrived at several other conclusions in the first place the question of the long time spent in our morning preparations thrust itself on our notice this could not be allowed to occur on the main journey at least two hours might be saved i had no doubt of that but how i should have to take time to think it over what required most alteration was our heavy outfit 
The sledges were constructed with a view to the most difficult conditions of ground. The surface here was of the easiest kind, and consequently permitted the use of the lightest outfit. We ought to be able to reduce the weight of the sledges by at least half, possibly more. Our big canvas ski boots were found to need thorough alteration. They were too small and too stiff, and had to be made larger and softer. Footgear had such an important bearing on the success of the whole expedition that we had to do all that it could to be done to get right. The four who had stayed at home had accomplished a fine piece of work. Framheim was hardly recognizable with the big new addition on its western wall. This penthouse was of the same width as the hut, thirteen feet, and measured about ten feet the other way. Windows had been put in, two of them, and it looked quite bright and pleasant when one came in, but this was not to last for long. Our architects had also dug a passage five feet wide round the whole hut, and this was now covered over simply by prolonging the sloping roof down to the snow to form a roof over this passage. On the side facing east a plank was fixed across the gable at the required height, and from this boards were brought down into the snow. The lower part of this new extension of the roof was well strengthened, and the weight of snow that would probably accumulate upon it in the course of the winter should be very great. This passage was connected with the penthouse by a side door in the northern wall. The passage was constructed to serve as a place for strong tinned foods and fresh meat, besides which its eastern end afforded an excellent place to get snow for melting. Here Lindstrom could be sure of getting as much clean snow as he wanted, which was an impossibility outside the house. We had a hundred twenty dogs running about, and they were not particular as to the purpose for which we might want the snow. But here in this snow wall, Lindstrom had no need to fear the dogs. Another great advantage was that he would not have to go out in bad weather, darkness, and cold, and every time he wanted a piece of ice. We now had to turn our attention in the first place, before the cold weather set in, to the arrangement of our dog tents. We could not leave them standing as they were on the snow. If we did so, we should soon find that the dogs' teeth are just as sharp as knives besides which they would be droughty and cold for the animals. To counteract this, the floor of each tent was sunk six feet below the surface of the barrier. A great part of the excavation had to be done with the axes, as we soon came to the bare ice. One of these dog tents, when finished, had quite an important appearance when one stood at the bottom and looked up. It measured eighteen feet from the floor to the peak of the tent, and the diameter of the floor was fifteen feet. Then twelve posts were driven into the ice floor at equal intervals round the wall of the tent, and the dogs were tethered to them. From the very first day the dogs took a liking to their quarters, and they were right, as they were well off there. I do not remember once seeing frost rhyme on the coats of my dogs down in the tent. They enjoyed every advantage there, air without droughts, light, and sufficient room. Round the tent pole we left a pillar of snow standing in the middle of the tent, to the height of a man. It took us two days to put our eight dog tents in order. Before the Fram sailed one of the whale boats had been put ashore on the barrier. One never knew. If we found ourselves in want of a boat, it would be bad to have none, and if we did not have to use it, there was no great harm done. It was brought up on two sledges drawn by twelve dogs, and it was taken some distance into the barrier. The mast stood high in the air and showed us its position clearly. Besides all their other work, the four men had found time shooting seals while we were away, and large quantities of meat were now stowed everywhere. 
we had to lose no time in getting ready the tent in which we stored our chief supply of seal meat it would not have lasted long if we had left it unprotected on the ground to keep off the dogs we built a seven feet high wall of large blocks of snow the dogs themselves saw to its covering with ice and for the time being all possibility of their reaching the meat was removed we did not let the floor grow old under our feet it was time to be off again to the south with more food our departure was fixed for february twenty second and before that time we had a great deal to do all the provisions had first to be brought from the main depot and prepared for the journey then we had to open the cases of pemmican take out the boxes in which it was soldered four rations in each cut these open and put these four rations back in the case without the tin lining by doing this we saved so much weight and at the same time avoided the trouble of having to do this work later in the cold the tin packing was used for the passage through the tropics where i was afraid the pemmican might possibly melt and run into the hold of the ship this opening and repacking took a long time but we got through it we used the penthouse as a packing shed another thing that took up a great deal of our time was our personal outfit the question of boots was gone into thoroughly most of us were in favor of the other big outer boots but in a revised edition there were a few but extremely few who declared for nothing but soft footgear in this case it did not make so much difference since they all knew that the big boots would have to be brought on the final journey on account of possible work on glaciers those therefore who wanted to wear soft footgear and hang their boots on the sledge might do so if they liked i did not want to force anyone to wear boots he did not care for it might lead too much unpleasantness and responsibility everyone therefore might do as much as he pleased personally i was in favor of boots with stiff soles so long as the uppers could be made soft and sufficiently large to give room for as many stockings as one wished to wear it was a good thing the bootmaker could not look in upon us at framheim just then and many times afterwards for that matter the knife was mercilessly applied to his beautiful work and the canvas plus a quantity of the superfluous leather was cut away as i had no great knowledge of the shoemaker's craft i gladly accepted wisting's offer to operate on mine the boots were unrecognizable when i got them back from him as regards shape they were perhaps just as smart before the alteration but as this is a very unimportant matter in comparison with ease and comfort i considered them improved by many degrees the thick canvas was torn off and replaced by thin weatherproof fabric big wedges were inserted in the toes and allowed room for several more pairs of stockings besides this one of the many soles was removed thus increasing the available space it appeared to me now that i had footgear that combined all the qualities i demanded stiff soles on which the hootfelt hoyer elfenstein steel buildings could be used and otherwise soft so that the foot was not pinched anywhere in spite of all these alterations my boots were once more in the hands of the operator before the main journey but when they were made perfect the boots of all the others underwent the same transformation and every day our outfit became more complete a minor number of alterations in our wardrobe were also carried out one man was an enthusiast for blinkers on his cap another did not care for them one put on a nose protector and another took his off and if there was a question of which was right each was prepared to defend his idea to the last these were all alterations of minor importance but being due to individual judgment they helped to raise the spirits and increase self-confidence 
Patents for braces also became the fashion. I invented one myself, and was very proud of it for a time. Indeed, I had the satisfaction of seeing it adopted by one of my rivals, but that rarely happened. Each of us wanted to make his own inventions, and to be as original as possible. Any contrivance that resembled something already in use was no good. But we found, like the farmer, that the old way often turned out to be the best. By the evening of February 21st, we were again ready to start. The sledges, seven in number, stood ready packed, and were quite imposing in appearance. Tempted by the favorable outcome of our former trip, we put too much on our sledges this time. On some of them, in any case, mine was overloaded. I had to suffer it afterwards, or, rather, my noble animals did. On February 22nd, at 8.30 a.m., the caravan moved off. Eight men, seven sledges, and forty-two dogs, and the most toilsome part of our whole expedition began. As usual, we began well from Framheim. Lindstrom, who was to stay at home alone and look after things, did not stand and wave farewells to us. Beaming with joy, he made for the hut as soon as the last sledge was in motion. He was visibly relieved, but I knew very well that before long he would begin to take little turns outside to watch the ridge. Would they soon be coming? There was a light breeze from the south, dead against us, and the sky was overcast. Nearly fallen snow made the going heavy, and the dogs had to work hard for their loads. Our former tracks were no longer visible, but we were lucky enough to find the first flag, which stood eleven miles inland. From there we followed the dried fish, which stood out sharply against the white snow and which were very easy to see. We pitched our camp at six o'clock in the evening, having come a distance of seventeen miles. Our camp was quite imposing, four tents for three men apiece, with two in each. In two of them the housekeeping arrangements were carried on. The weather had improved during the afternoon, and by evening we had the most brilliant clear sky. Next day the going was even heavier, and the dogs were severely tired. We did no more than twelve and a half miles after eight hours' march. The temperature remained reasonable, positive five degrees Fahrenheit. We had lost our dried fish, and for the last few hours we were going only by compass. End of section 13. Recording by Jamie Strassenberg, Cypress, California.